0: So, I'm pretty sure that if I would come out there and ask each and every one of you for an embarrassing story about yourself, you could probably come up with one. Um, Maybe a time you looked a little foolish. Um, Some of them might be funny, Um, some of them might be uncomfortable. And you definitely wouldn't want to tell me. I have my fair share of embarrassing stories. I think if I go back to middle school, that's pretty much where the majority of them lie. Um, but I have plenty of embarrassing stories I could tell you. I'm going to tell you one that's not—it's—it's it's kind of embarrassing. I looked a little foolish. You kind of maybe had to be there. But let me tell you anyway. So I was 24 years old. I was about a year and a half into my first ministry as a youth minister. And I was teaching a lesson to the middle school students, middle school and high school students, and I was uh, going to focus on part of my lesson on David and Goliath. We were talking about overcoming things, so obviously you have to talk about David and Goliath. That just makes sense. And, um, but I was kind of spinning a different direction, and I was focusing on what if. Like, what if it didn't turn out the way that we know the story? So what if Goliath won? Or what if there was at least a little more back and forth? Maybe a little more of a battle. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I would love to see that battle, but I think it was pretty fast, and I think when David, a boy, hits Goliath with a slingshot with a rock and Goliath falls dead, it's like, I mean, that's that's awesome, but I was kind of expecting, you know, like an award-winning battle And so I kind of talked to the students about this, and so I decided I was going to have an example. And so I had a table set up on stage, and uh, in my infinite knowledge as a 24-year-old, I figured I would arm wrestle one of the kids in my youth group because, I mean, obviously, I'm 24 years old, not a small guy, I'm going to win. And uh, you probably know where this is going. It's going to get real funny in a second when I tell you who I arm wrestled. I chose a seventh grader. A seventh grade boy, his name's Andrew. I was going to be very selective, so Andrew got up on the stage with me, and I kind of told him what was going to happen. And we, we, it wasn't really rehearsed, but I said, okay, this is what we're going to do, Andrew. We're going to uh, do this story of David and Goliath. I'm going to be Goliath. You're going to be David, and we're going to arm wrestle, and I'm going to tell the story through our arm wrestling match in, in a different way, though. What if it was more of a back and forth? So we're going to start arm wrestling, so don't freak out when I, you know, go down with your arm and we go back, and you know, this its going to be fun. It'll be all right. Um, so we got settled in. Now but my, real quick, Andrew is not a big kid. All right. Uh, he's not the smallest in our youth group. Cause I didn't want to get made fun of. They're like, Oh yeah, you picked on the little kid, but he wasn't a big kid whatsoever. Um, I'm going to say he was 13 because it's better to say he's 13 with the rest of my story. Instead of saying he was probably 12. Um, he was at least a teenager but he was probably 12. Um, So, we started to arm wrestle, and I said one, two, three. In that moment, I knew it was a horrible decision for me to arm wrestle Andrew, because when we started, I was going to go down and go back. (laughs) We didn't move. There was no movement except for me shaking and my pride melting away and my ego falling to the floor and me realizing that if I let this go for more than a minute, I'm going to lose to a seventh grader as a 24-year-old. And so I did what any good youth minister does. I changed the lesson on the fly really, really fast, and I talked about how David did win, though. It was amazing, and God filled him up with power, and it was so cool. And the kids, I think, took a lot away from it. The adults in the room knew that I was faking the whole time, and I was super embarrassed because I was losing arm wrestling to a 13-year-old. Looking foolish is not fun. We don't like to look embarrassed. We we don't enjoy that feeling. I I really think the fear of looking foolish is a curse of self-consciousness. We become self-conscious as we get a little bit older and we begin to these fears begin to build up in us and we're afraid to look embarrassed. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from raising our hand in fourth grade because we're a little nervous our answer might be wrong in class. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from asking someone out on a date because what if we get rejected? It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from changing majors in college or changing careers as an adult. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from praying for a miracle in the midst of unbelievers because we're afraid of what they might think. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from sharing our faith in that same group of unbelievers. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from worshiping God the way we should, the way that we could. We're afraid of what it might look like. I think one definition of faith can be this. The willingness to look foolish to the world around you. Let me flesh that out a little bit. Uh, Noah looked foolish building an ark in the desert. Sarah looked foolish buying maternity clothes at 90. The Israelites looked foolish marching around Jericho blowing trumpets. David looked foolish attacking Goliath with a slingshot and a rock. The wise men looked foolish following a star. Peter looked foolish stepping out of a boat in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. And Jesus looked foolish hanging half naked on a cross. But that's faith. Faith is the willingness to look foolish. And in those examples, the results kind of speak for themselves, don't they? Noah was saved from the flood. Sarah gave birth to Isaac. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. David f- defeated Goliath. The wise men found the Messiah. Peter, Peter walked on water. And Jesus rose from the dead as the Savior of the world. Can I tell you why some of us have never killed a giant or stepped out of a boat to walk on water? It's because we're not willing to look foolish. We're not willing to attack with a slingshot. We're not willing to step out of the boat in the lake. This morning, I want to take just a short look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 to 23. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I encourage you to go back through and read that and what's going on in that story with David. Uh, David has recently become king at this point. And even though this, uh, this incident, this event is kind of a standalone event, uh, I think it kind of speaks loudly to why God uses David in the way he does and why David is considered a man after God's own heart. So like I said, David has recently become king. He's been a shepherd boy. He's been a soldier. He's led soldiers. Uh, he's been a fugitive, essentially, being uh, hunted uh, by Saul. And now he has become king. So David has his, uh, his royal robes on, he's got his crown, he's defeated the Philistines, and he is in the process of bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. This is huge. This is a huge deal for David. For the people of Israel, this is, this is gigantic. But I would probably say this situation, this event is bigger than David defeating Goliath. Because bringing the Ark of the Covenant, bringing the presence of God back to Jerusalem, this symbolism that's happening here is, is big for these people. It's like winning every single national sport championship all at the same time. It's bigger than that. And David is just overcome with excitement. He is thrilled what's happening. And he begins to celebrate. And he's not, up, he's not standing up high doing... No, he is celebrating. He begins to dance. He takes off his royal robes. He takes off his crown, and he is excited about what's happening here. But not everybody's excited. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16 says this, But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Now, Michal is Saul's daughter and is now David's wife, and she is pretty embarrassed about what David's doing. So let me make a little quick observation. When you get excited about God, some people will think you're acting foolishly. When you get excited about God, don't expect everybody to get excited about your excitement. Here's why. See, when the Holy Spirit fills you up, when the Holy Spirit turns up the heat underneath you, and you begin to respond in a way that maybe you weren't familiar with, you're just super excited. Have you ever had that moment, maybe in a time of worship, where the Spirit's just got, she's got a hold of you, and, and it's just it's like almost like an out of body experience, and you're having this time, and you're just super excited about what's happening. It this kind of disrupts the status quo. See, if you're around your friends or your family and you begin to get this excited and you begin to maybe act a little different when the Holy Spirit's filling you up, people begin to look at you a little differently. Some people are excited for you and they're inspired by it. Other people are convicted by it in a negative way and they look at you kind of in contempt and they don't like what they see and they begin to criticize. I think nine times out of ten, criticism is a defense mechanism. See, we tend to criticize in others what we don't like about ourselves, that we see that we're missing. David's wife is dripping with sarcasm. 2 Samuel 6, verse 20 says that David went home to bless his family, and he's talking with his wife, and she says, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls. Now, this would be her attempt to make David feel really embarrassed for what he's done. Now, again, when it says David disrobed in the sight of slave girls, David's not naked, okay, all right? But he takes off that, that robe. He's taken off this, this big royal robe, this garment that is heavy, it's, it's jewel-covered and, and bright colors, and he's taken this off, and he wants to celebrate The return of the ark to Jerusalem. Here's what impresses me about David. He wasn't afraid of looking foolish at this point. David has foolish moments in Scripture. We know of them. But in this moment, he wasn't afraid of looking foolish. He wasn't afraid of taking off the royal robes and dancing. I want you to think about the circumstances. David, again, is newly crowned as king. Uh, The significance of this is that I think there was probably added pressure to act kingly. Uh, He's got his royal robes on. He's got his crown. He has to represent that. He has uh, kind of his reputation to protect. See, kings don't take off their robes and dance in front of everybody. That's what shepherd boys do. And in that moment... David became a shepherd boy again. After all those years of being a soldier and leading soldiers and on the run for his life, he's a shepherd boy again. He's excited about what's happening, and he can't contain it. See, no one knows better of how a king's supposed to act than Mikael. She knows how David is supposed to act. She knows what he's supposed to be doing as a king. Her dad was a king for a while, and she's embarrassed for herself, but also for her husband. She sees it as a disgrace, the way he's acting. I think Saul, her father, was probably very kingly. Saul probably enjoyed the pomp and circumstance. I think the symbolism here is pretty powerful also. The removal of the uh, royal robe. I think this robe represents David's identity, his security as king. I mean, if he has this on, he has to act one way. But if once he takes it off, he's free to act a different way. He's just supposed to act a different way in private. Keep it to himself. How many of us wear a robe throughout the day, throughout our week? We put on our royal robe, our fake security, this identity that we want people to see. But hopefully, in a time of worship, you drop that robe at the door and you're ready to celebrate. My hope is actually that you never really pick it back up. That you're in a constant state of worship. That you spend time in prayer with God throughout the week. You're not nervous about what people are thinking when you're sitting in a restaurant and you take time to pray. You're in your car and you put your hand up as you're driving and you're just singing out that you're not nervous about that. We need to remove this false security. See David found his security in God, not as a king. He found his security in the Lord. If you read the Psalms, David says the Lord is my refuge, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shield. David taking off his robe is a picture of worship in this moment. He knows that he can't do this the way he wants to, the way he feels led to wearing this heavy robe. So he removes the robe to celebrate. The greatest freedom in the world is having nothing to prove. Instead of trying to prove who he was as king of Israel... David was embracing who God is as the king of kings. David wasn't afraid of looking foolish. We'll continue in verse 21. And David said to his wife, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else in his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord of God's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. The New Living Translation says it like this, I am willing to act like a fool in order to show my joy in the Lord. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this. The second observation I make from this passage is worship of the Lord doesn't have to be in a dignified manner. I think sometimes if we grow up in the church, we get a sense that we have to worship God in a particular way. We have a, uh, like a standard we have to follow, these, these rules and regulations. Sometimes we feel like that. I'm actually very thankful here at South Union Christian Church that um, many of you um, enjoy clapping your hands, raising your hands, closing your eyes and singing out, getting down on your knees and, and praying. I, I enjoy watching that. That is, that's powerful, actually, for me, personally, to be able to stand in the back and watch this happen during worship. But I think we all know that's not how we all are. That's not how we've all always been. And, and this dignified manner of worship. So there's a powerful scene in uh, Rocky Three. I like the Rocky movies, uh, even, the, even the newer ones. Uh, even the, the Creed movies, I, I like the Rock. In fact, I'll be honest, I'm a pretty big Sylvester Stallone fan. Uh, I just am. Uh, my favorite movie, has nothing to do with my first example, it is actually Over the Top which is an arm wrestling movie, uh, so it's just kind of funny. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite movies, and I, I'll give you a long explanation about that another time. This is not the time for that because you'll get bored with it. Uh, but I like, I like Sylvester Stallone movies. I like the Rocky movies. And, and I, in the third Rocky movie, um, there's this scene where you see Rocky has, he's got a lot of money, uh, he's driving fancy cars, he's got a big house, and he's become, um, well, he's lost his fire to fight, for one, and he's just become very cultured, he's very civilized. In fact, that's what Mick, his trainer, says. He looks at him and says, but then the worst thing happened to you, Rock, that could happen to any fighter. You got civilized. When I read the Gospels, the only civilized people I see are the Pharisees. And evidently, Jesus wasn't very impressed with their pomp and circumstance either. In fact, it seems to me that Jesus handpicked a dozen undomesticated disciples, men that weren't put together. They didn't have all the training, and he discipled them. See, I see Jesus reprimanding the Pharisees at one point, and in the very same moment, he is praising a prostitute who doesn't know anything more to do than to to interrupt a party and uh, to break an alabaster jar of perfume all over Jesus' feet and wash his feet. She she has no other idea what to do and how to handle this moment of worship. She just wants to worship Jesus, and that's the only thing she can think to do, is is to break this perfume over Jesus' feet. I don't think God cares about the outward appearance. I don't think it matters if we're wearing royal robes or servants' rags. See, what God is looking for, He's looking for people who are desperate enough, the people that are desperate enough to climb a sycamore tree to try to get a glimpse of Jesus. He's looking for those people who are willing to fight through a crowd of people just to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. He's looking for people that are willing to climb on top of a house, tear a hole through the roof, and lower a friend down in front of Jesus because they have faith that he will heal them. People that will yell at the top of their lungs and jump out of a boat to chase after Jesus. That's what God's looking for. These aren't dignified ways of worship and ways of living. Number three, there are times when the Holy Spirit moves us to undignified worship. Now, understand when I say undignified, I don't mean inappropriate. I don't mean a bad way of worship. I just mean it breaks away from the dignified sense I was just talking about. The Holy Spirit moves in us in such a way that it moves us to a place that we've maybe never been, only been a few times, as I said earlier, to this place where it's almost an out-of-body experience. In fact, uh, one of the words for worship in Hebrew is halah. It means clamorously foolish. It's a word for worship. Halal. I love that. So what it's saying is if you aren't willing to look a little foolish, maybe you're not ready to worship completely. Because if you think about it, worship in of itself is a little foolish looking. Don't you think? I mean, we raise our hands to someone we can't touch we sing to someone we can't see have you ever seen someone dancing in their car driving on the road you stop at a stoplight and they're going nuts in their car heads bobbing they're swaying if they're really into it the car's even moving a little bit and you're like they're foolish they look nuts but why are they why do they look nuts because you can't hear the music who knows? Maybe if they had the windows down, you had your windows down, maybe you'd be rocking your car at the same time. I don't know. But you can't hear the music. So that's what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David can hear the music. His wife can't. So who's foolish, really? See, I believe that if we could uh, tune in to heaven's frequency, I think we would... Uh, Hear the angels singing, and I'm convinced it would lift us up off our feet. Like we would be, we wouldn't be able to control ourselves. We'd be so excited. And I want you to get a picture of that, and I want you to understand that's what heaven's like. Like that's what it's going to be like. This time of worship. We're not going to care about what's going on around us. We're going to be so excited to be there and worship God. My boys are uh, 11, and Blaise, my youngest, will be eight in a month, a month from the day. And they still love to sing and worship. So obviously, the last several weeks uh, we've been have had to be home for a while, and they're still at home right now. And, and they watch uh, the service, but they also have their own thing that they watch. And there's a time of worship, and I mean, I got to be honest. There's sometimes I'm like, I mean, chill out because you guys are nuts. Um, they go crazy. They're dancing and they're singing loud. I'm. Mean, I can hear them outside. I'm sure my neighbors think we're probably weird people. Um, but. They're they're just singing. When Ian was uh, five or six uh, at our our old church, um, they sang the song "God's Not Dead" by Newsboys, and Ian sang it so loud. There was about twenty or twenty-five kids on the stage. He was overpowering all the kids. He was overpowering the children's minister who was singing to a mic and playing his guitar. He was singing so loud. The first uh, couple years we were here, Ian would sing during Easter. He would sing so loud. And Blaze, oh my goodness, that kid. He his laugh is infectious and he begins to laugh and sing at the same time. And it's like, Why are you laughing? Like I don't understand what's so funny, but it's just because he's so full of joy. That's what I love about kids. They're not self conscious. But somewhere along the way, they become self conscious. We all have. We lose a little bit. We understand that's not how we're supposed to act in public. we got to be more dignified than that. And so we become more self-conscious. And we lose what I am calling this God consciousness. I want you to think of spirituality as, spiritual maturity as a continuum. So you have self-conscious on one side, And you have God conscious on another. Becoming more like Jesus Christ is becoming more God conscious and less self-conscious. We get to the point where we don't really care what people think about us, how they see us. When we're in worship and we drop to our knees here at the altar or at our seats, put our hands up, we, we don't care. Now, don't get me wrong. If you don't raise your hands and drop to your knees, it doesn't mean you're not worshiping right. Okay, don't, don't take that when I'm saying that. I'm just saying, if you feel the urge to do that, you should just do it. God loves our God consciousness. when We lose our self-consciousness, and we focus on Him in this time of worship. See, we are way too preoccupied with what others think about us. We're too nervous about what the world can say about us. And we lose it. I think that's what, um, could be what um, Jesus was saying when he says, you must become like little children if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or when John the Baptist says, He, as in Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. We need to care more about what God thinks and care less about what people think. See, when we're in heaven, we're going to have an opportunity to worship God. It's going to be constant. It's going to be amazing. And we won't worry about what's going on around us. We're going to be too busy enjoying God forever. So my question as I close is this. Are you willing to look foolish? Are you you willing to worship without inhibition? Are you willing to maybe become a little undignified in your time of prayer, in your time of communicating with God, your time of study, and just be so... involved with what God is doing in your life and so attracted to what he wants for you, it doesn't matter what's going on around you? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to let God take control?